privilege. And uh, I want to draw your attention to the glories of our Savior this morning. I want you, I want to encourage you to behold his glory. And my text for this is taken from John's prologue. My text is taken from one of the most profound verses of the Bible. It's a text that preachers dream about preaching from, and then when they're preparing, they're overwhelmed. But I'm going to take a small part of it this morning. So I'll be reading from John's Gospel, chapter 1, starting with verse 14 to 18. And the Word became flesh and dwelt, tented amongst us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Let's pray. To you we lift up our eyes, O you who are enthroned in the heavens. Behold, as the eyes of servants look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of a maidservant to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to you, our Lord God, to Jesus, our Savior, to the gracious Spirit of God, till you have mercy on us. Have mercy on us. Show us the glory of our Savior. And we pray in his name. Amen. As we have sung these uh, precious uh, Christmas carols again in another Advent and Christmas season, how many of you wish when you were singing Angels from the Realm of, of Glory that you could have actually been there with the shepherds and seen the glorious angels and watched that spectacle? How many of you would have liked to have seen some of the other glorious spectacles the scriptures unfold for us. How about the baptism of our Savior with John the Baptist, where the Spirit descends as a dove and the voice comes from heaven? How about the majestic mountain that Peter talks about the Mount of Transfiguration, where Jesus is transfigured. And there with Moses and Elijah, 
discusses what he's about to accomplish, the exodus that he's about to accomplish in Jerusalem. How about Peter with the miraculous draught of fishes and the glory somewhat hidden but not to a fisherman who knows what it means when his net's full and breaking because of all of the fish so that Peter is thrown to his knees before his Jesus of Nazareth. It says, depart from me, I'm a wicked sinner. Or moving back in history, you know, the Gospel of John says that Moses, or, or Isaiah, saw the glory of Jesus. That's why Jamie put in that Isaiah 6 passage. Jamie's suggesting to you that it was in the temple where the hem of the garment, the robe of the Lord, just the hem, filled the whole temple. That was Isaiah's privilege to see the glory. Would you like to have seen that? Or go back further in history. Go back to the Mount Sinai. When the thunder and the fire was on the mountain, and then this terrifying voice gives the Ten Commandments to the people of God. And they're overwhelmed with terror, and they say, Moses, you talk to him, you listen to him, this is too much for us. Well, we do like spectacles, we do like glory. I want to talk this morning about glory, because the text talks about it. The disciples, John, beheld the glory of Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth, walking around I want to talk about the fullness of that glory as described by John. Grace and truth. And I want to encourage you to consider that glory. And I want to tell you why you should consider the glory of your Savior Jesus. And if you're here a seeker, I want to encourage you to read the text and ask for Ask God to send his spirit to open your minds so that you can see the glory of God in the face of Jesus. So, glory, grace, peace, no, grace, grace and truth, and then why you should behold. First, glory. What is glory? We do like glorious things. Do we not like, well, some of us like maybe the halftime on Super Bowl. Uh, do we not like um, parades? Do we not like um, the expression of patriotism, which is a kind of manifestation of the glory of our nation, um, the, the firecrackers on July 4th? Um, glory is that which expresses the underlying character or value 
of an institution or of a person. You go into a courtroom and the judge comes in after everybody's seated and the, and the, uh, the uh, command goes out, all rise. And the, the pomp, the robes of the judge, they're pointing to the institution of the law uh, that our nation lives by. So we hope. What is glory? Is it just a show? Well, my text, um, John chapter 1, verse 14, is one of these texts that really cannot be understood properly without reference to an Old Testament passage. And I'm going to spend a fair amount of time right now working on the Old Testament passage. And it's a passage where that, that happens at a very critical junction in the people of God. It's right after the commandments, the Ten Commandments were given. And Moses is up on the mountain and he's getting instructions from God about how God is to be worshipped and how the temple, uh, the tabernacle is to be uh, uh, built according to the plans, the divine instructions from heaven, and how the priests are supposed to function, how they're to be dressed and how they're to function. And there is an orderliness and there's a glory to all of this that's uh, being set out. And what's happening down below? The people get tired of waiting for Moses to come off the mountain and they ask for a calf to be formed, a golden calf, so that they can worship the golden calf. And Moses learns about it on the mountain, and he pleads with God. Because there are several plans in motion now. One is that God would destroy these people and make Moses the new Abraham. And Abraham says, no, don't do that. What will the Egyptians think? That won't be to your glory. And they move to the second plan. Well, I'm not going to go with you. I was planning to have this tabernacle in the midst of the tribes, and my glory cloud would be right there in their, in their presence, but I'm not going to do that anymore. I'll send an angel in my place to lead you guys. But I can't lead these stiff-necked and sinful people. And Moses said, no, that's precisely why we need you to lead these sinful people, because they're sinful and stiff-necked. You have to be in our presence. And God relents again, and God forgives. And Moses is overwhelmed. How could you do that, God? What kind of a God are you after all? And you know what he says? Show me your glory. Well, hadn't he just seen it with the fire and the brimstone and, 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 and the terrifying voice on the mountain? Hadn't he just seen the glory of God? What more does he want? Well, aren't we thankful that Moses did this, asked this question, show me your glory, and aren't we thankful for what we heard, Moses heard and reported to us. Let me report, let me read this to you. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him, Moses, there, and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord. 
Yahweh, Jehovah, the Lord, the Lord, a God most merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. So Moses says, show me your glory. By the way, glory is not an attribute. It's the manifestation of an attribute. It's the expression of the attributes. Now, if I were to ask you, what's the most important, the most glorious attribute of God? Well, you're all Presbyterians, so you would say his sovereignty, right? We're all intelligent, so we would say his wisdom. We all rejoice in power, so we would say his might, his strength, what he did to the Egyptians. What does God say? It's my goodness. It's my steadfast love. It's my faithfulness. Isn't that amazing? That the primary characteristic of God, the most glorious characteristic of God, is his Mercy, graciousness, his forgiving of sinners. That's what this ancient text from one of the most profoundly disturbing incidents in the history of God's people. I suggest you might want to reread Exodus 33 and Exodus 34, where this text it's given that God wants to be known. And this is the Old Testament. This isn't the New Testament. This is the Old Testament. God wants to be known by his steadfast love, his mercy, his graciousness, which is utterly reliable. He's faithful. Now, many scholars suggest that what we have here when it talks about steadfast love and faithfulness is an Henaides. Maybe some of you can remember from grammar class or from literature, Henaides, a concept. It actually takes two words to describe because one word really doesn't cover it. I mean, if you know a foreign language, maybe you understand that there are certain concepts you really can. I mean, we my wife and I learned German three, uh, five decades ago. Gemütlichkeit. How do you put that into English? You need more than one English word to say gemütlichkeit. Coziness, comfort. Um, well... A handiades is where two things so, are so joined together that when one is mentioned, the other, and, and you can't really separate them. 
And I'm going to suggest to you, to you that that's what Psalm 136 does with steadfast love and faithfulness when it says, the steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. It's joining together these two phrases that are constantly used in the Old Testament. Steadfast love, or hesed, and faithfulness, amen. Now, let's go to my text, the New Testament. John chapter 1, verse 14. And we beheld his glory, the glory of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. You see a connection? Grace, truth, steadfast love, faithfulness. If you studied Hebrews recently, do you see a connection with the merciful and faithful high priest that your Savior is? These concepts carry over. These concepts carry over. So glory is the expression of the character, and what God wants us to do is to zero in on his love, his mercy, his grace, and his truthfulness, his faithfulness. Now let's turn to the New Testament, to John, and let me try to unpack grace and truth. And again, I'm going to suggest that Grace and truth is a kind of hendiades. In other words, the grace that our Savior expressed and performed throughout his ministry was indeed a truthful grace. It was never untruthful. It always forwarded the claims of truth. And when he, when he uh, set forth the truth, it was always in a gracious way. He always spoke the truth in love, as we are commanded to do. But there's two different words, so we'll let's uh, unpack them separately. Number one, grace. What is grace? Maybe you're remembering you were taught Unmerited favor, correct? Let me ask this question. My daughter posed to me day before yesterday. Is grace a thing? A thing that can be portioned out? You get a prescription from your physician, and then you take a bit of it every, according to the prescription, prescribed uh, times and occasions. Is grace like that? There was in the medieval church that idea that there was a treasury of grace and that the church had the responsibility of doling it out in dribs and drabs under certain appropriate ritual uh, conditions. Is that a fair understanding of grace? 
Now it is a fair understanding of righteousness. There is a treasury of righteousness which our Savior did accomplish through his full and complete obedience. And it is given to all who come in faith to the Son of God. The righteousness of Christ is given like that. But grace, when we, we, we talk about means of grace, Dory prayed about means of grace. What is grace? Let me suggest to you that grace is favor. Grace is a gift given to the one favored. The needy come to the strong for favor. The poor come to the rich for favor. The ignorant come to the wise to be favored with the knowledge that the wise can provide. Grace is coming to the one that is more powerful, the one that is more able, the one that, is, that, that has what the beggar needs. And the grace that Jesus was full of is his favor to you as you come to him seeking his aid. We see the grace of the Lord Jesus at work, especially, this is John's gospel, so let me, let me start right here with the next chapter. Um, kinships, a family uh, that's connected uh, by family tire, uh, ties with Mary, his mother. They've got a wedding there. Jesus is invited. He goes. He goes with his disciples. And there was, we don't know what, poor planning on the amount of wine, a leaky vessel, um, maybe unexpected guests in a greater demand on the quantity than... We don't know. We're not told why the ran, wine ran out. Was it gracious for Jesus to provide that wine? Indeed it was. There was a need there. Let's keep going. The next chapter, you have this famous, prominent scribe called Nicodemus. He's made it in his in his profession, he's on the council of Jerusalem. And he comes to Jesus at night. And he wants to engage Jesus in a conversation. Was Jesus gracious to engage him? Yes, indeed he was. Now, notice, he immediately quickly goes to truth. Nicodemus, there's something you really need to understand about entering the kingdom of God. To do that, you got to be born again. You have to have the Spirit change you. Without the Spirit's help changing you, there's no possibility for you seeing the kingdom of God. So truth and grace meet there. Chapter 4, 
the Samaritan woman at the well. Did we see the grace of, do we see the grace of, of our Savior Jesus involved in the way that he engages with that woman of the well? Do we see his concern for truth? Go call your husband. Um, I have no husband. Yes, you have had, what is it, five husbands, and the man you're with now is not your husband. In other words, he was gracious to talk to her. He was gracious to point her to the, to, to the living water that she could get um, through the Spirit. He was gracious to, to engage with her and to point to her, but he also did it pointing to truth. That's the glory of our Savior. And you can keep going through the, old, for, through the ministries of the gospel and see that. Uh, perhaps the, one of the... Well, let me, let me keep going here. He makes the lame to walk. Why? In order that the lame can function in a truthful way in this life. In order that the lame can be enabled to serve. He opens the blind, the eyes of the one born blind, so that the one born blind can understand that Jesus is the light, and everybody else can understand that Jesus is the light of the world. But perhaps the most important one is, you know, chapter 10, the good shepherd. What does the good shepherd do? He knows his sheep by name. He calls them by name. He hears them. And whoever calls upon him, he never sends away empty. This is expressed in Matthew's gospel so beautifully in chapter 11, where after Jesus has thanked his father for the sovereign work that he's doing and drawing people to understand the truth, he then says, come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, for my yoke is easy and light. And I am meek, humble, and lowly in heart. It's the only place in the Gospels where Jesus tells us what's in his heart. And what is in his heart? Humility, meekness, and the desire to see people come, be drawn to him. Full of grace and truth in Matthew's gospel, as well as John's gospel. Let's move on to the other topic, truth. You know, John's gospel uses the word grace four times, all of them in this passage I just read. He stops using the word grace. Pretty surprising, isn't it? Considering how often the word grace shows up in the rest of the New Testament. But most of it's in Paul. But what word does show up later in John's gospel? The word truth. In fact, that shows up all the time. As he's talking to Nicodemus, he's, some people actually do the truth. For us, 
Truth is a quality of speech. It's when we don't tell lies, but we tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. That's, it's a quality of language. A sentence is true or it's false, depending on how it conforms to reality. That's our understanding of truth. That was the Greek understanding of truth. And, of course, it was the Hebrew, too, except that the Hebrews added something to it. And they talked about doing the truth, being in the truth. And that's what we find in John's gospel. As a matter of fact, let me take you to the very end of Jesus' ministry, just before he goes to the cross. He's on trial there. He's in the dock. And Pilate has been given, you know, an accusation why Pilate needs to uh, crucify Jesus by the uh, Sanhedrin. And the reason is because he claims to be king. And so Pilate comes to Jesus, are you a king? And you remember the uh, kind of conversation between Jesus and Pilate, but ultimately Jesus says, yes, but my kingdom is a different kind of kingdom. My kingdom is involved with truth. For this I was born, for this I came into the world, to bear witness to truth. You remember the cynical response of Pilate, perhaps. What is truth? And he doesn't wait for Jesus to tell him. He pronounces judgment. And Jesus, who had said earlier in, in his prayer to the Father, he said, consecrate my disciples in the truth. I consecrate myself so that they will be consecrated or sanctified in the truth. And what does Jesus do? He goes to the cross. That's part of his ministry of truth. That's truth because sinners need his sacrifice. It's truth because his sacrifice will indeed make them holy, sanctify them, consecrate them, set them apart from their sin. So this is all related to what he says in the 8th chapter when he talks about if you... If you Remain in my word, and my word remains in you. Then you will be my disciples, and the truth will set you free. This truth will set you free. Truth is that which sets us free from the delusions of the evil one. Sets us free from the deceitfulness of Satan. Sets us free from the bondage of sin. And that's what Jesus' ministry was about. To take us away from the temptations of our sinful hearts. To see the truth about who God is and how God would have us live. It was a ministry devoted to truth. And so, part of the ministry of Jesus was to zero in on helping everybody understand the truth 
there are those sections in the Gospels where he spoke with one as, as if he had authority. He spoke with wisdom. What were the people amazed about? They were amazed about the way that he zeroed in on the essence of things. For example, out of the heart, the mouth speaks. Well, yeah, that's true. Why didn't our rabbis told us that? Well, maybe they did, but what Jesus was doing was getting to the heart of things. And that was his ministry of truth. Well, um, glory, full of grace and truth. Why should you and I pay attention? Why should we be held, behold the, the glory of Jesus? Well, number one, because it's the glory of God. Because it's the glory of God. It was the glory revealed to Moses. And it is the glory that the only begotten Son of the Father reveals. The glory of God is presented to us in the face of Jesus. Don't dare draw a distinction between the Father's attitude toward you and the Son's attitude toward you. They are in complete harmony with each other. And if you see the glory of Jesus, full of grace and truth, you also see the glory of the Father that is full of grace and truth. But let's go on. Why should you look to that, the glory of Jesus? Because if you see it, you'll love him more. And if you love him more, you will want to serve him more. And as you love him more and serve him more, you get changed. The spirit of truth whom the Lord sends together with his father goes at work in your heart and changes you so that little by little, from one degree of glory to another, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3, 18, from one degree of glory to the next degree of glory, you keep being changed. And what does that enable you to do? To witness. To witness, first of all, by your life, but secondly, by your speech, by your words, to witness to the glories of Jesus. So you want to behold his glory. Just yesterday, we got another um, email, electronic version of a prayer letter. Maybe you heard Dory pray this morning for the full support for Patty and Jonas, uh, uh, Jonas and Patty Stava, our missionaries in Norway. Well, the letter that just came yesterday came praising God. They're now 
Um, but what Patty Stava was doing in that email, that prayer letter, she was just saying, it's my habit at the end of the year to review the past year and see how God's favor has been granted to us in this past year. And by the way, Stavis had a terribly difficult year. A terribly difficult year. But she was praising God for the favor that was shown in the midst of that difficult year. What I want you to do is in the privacy of your own home, heart, how did you experience the favor of Jesus, of God, the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? How did you experience that favor this past year? How was grace, the favor of God, manifested to you? How was truth impressed upon your life? You do that at the end of the year, and then throughout the year, you look for it. As you do that, you know what happens? Your love for Jesus increases. Your trust in your God increases. And you are better enabled to serve him and your neighbor. Let's pray. Gracious Father in heaven, thank you for Jesus. Thank you so love this fallen, hurting world that you sent your son, your only son. That whoever should believe in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Thank you for Jesus, whose glory was demonstrated in his ministry as full of grace and truth. And may we, Father, see how that's been operative in our lives in the past, and may we have confidence to go forth that it will continue to be operative in our hearts, in our, the lives of those we love in our church. So we pray in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.